the honeybee is nature's little miracle worker. It not only produces honey for our diets, but plays a significant role in pollinating plants that is vital for the agricultural sector. However, its future is under threat. Rural reporter Kevin Eichen investigates. Beekeepers from around the country swarmed on Parliament three years ago, protesting at MAF's proposal to allow honey imports from Australia. That battle and the debate over the risk of importing more bee pests and diseases is still being fought. But the plea to save our bees could equally apply to the growing threat to the very existence of the honeybee. If the beekeeping industry is not looked after worldwide and all bees cease to exist, which could quite easily happen, we would be starving within five years and we would probably have some world wars as well because most food relies on bees for pollination. Nature's little miracle worker is under siege from all over the world. From a seemingly unstoppable army of parasites and viruses, mass colony collapses, pesticides and farming practices. So we've got two lots of bacteria, American fowl brood and European fowl brood, which are bacterial diseases of honeybee brood. We've got nearly 11 different viruses that we can find in the colonies. We've got um, one fungus that goes in there called chalk brood. We've got Tunisema species, which are gut parasites that go in and attack the gut cells of the bees. We've got three different mites. Then we've got one beetle, a small hive beetle, which is just a recent pest that de is devastating colonies at the moment. We've got two moths and wax moths that eat the comb. So not only do the bees have to fight against all of these other things that want to use them, we then have human beings, of course, who've worked out a way to manage them as well, who want to come in and take their honey off them. And the bees then have to fight against the pesticides that are used around the world. A lot of the pesticides are not only toxic to the pests, but also toxic to honeybees. So when you look at that big picture, bees have some really big challenges to be able to survive out there in the world these days. New Zealand bee scientist Mark Goodwin, who's seeking survival solutions for the honeybee. The honeybee. It's a cornerstone of the environment, essential to our food supply. But around the world, the honeybee is disappearing. In a matter of days, the adult population totally evacuates the hive and we presume goes off and dies somewhere. This is an incredible calamity and represents an incredible loss. We're talking maybe a third of bees in the United States have disappeared. That's 800,000 hives of bees. That scenario, highlighted in a National Geographic television program, Silence of the Bees, is driving the efforts of scientists and beekeepers trying to unearth the mystery of the mass disappearance of bee colonies occurring in Europe and the United States. The phenomenon has been described variously as disappearing disease, colony collapse disorder, or in the UK as Mary Celeste syndrome, from beekeepers' bewilderment at discovering their hives empty, except for perhaps a queen bee and a few surviving attendants. There are plenty of theories flying around as to the possible causes of colony collapse, and internationally, a huge research effort's underway to get to the bottom of it. But no definitive cause has emerged, and there's a commonly held view that a combination of factors could be responsible. Bee scientist Mark Goodwin. Nobody had even used the word colony collapse disorder um, three or four years ago. Um, it wasn't until in America they noticed a whole lot of co colonies dying for totally unexplained reasons. 
when the Americans came up with this description of it, a lot of other countries suddenly realised, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, that they were also losing bees for unexplained reasons. Once they started to add it all together, they realised too that they had a similar sort of problem. Whether it's the same cause or not, we don't know. But the real issue is lots of things called honeybee colonies. And I think for me, the most compelling evidence at the moment, and I may change my mind at some later stage, is that when they did a survey, about 95% of those with colony collapse disorder had a new virus that we didn't know about, um, Israeli acute paralysis virus. That was at least suggestive that it was a good marker for colony collapse disorder, even if it wasn't the cause. There's also evidence that the Varroa honeybee parasite that kills both the larvae and adult bees is contributing to colony collapse. John Hartnell, who chairs Federated Farmers Bee Group. We look on the worldwide scene uh, with colony hive collapse disorder. Varroa is, is the common denominator wherever you go. I think there are other factors, such as the beekeeping management practices in places like America where they're pollinators, they're not honey producers. So they're chasing pollination from the warm south right up to the north as the season moves along and those bees are put under enormous stress. Um, we, we see that as probably a factor in the whole issue. There is the issue of drug feeding which is, happens around most countries of the world in the bee industry and now we're seeing these the hive stock start to, uh, to fall back. They're experiencing some enormous deaths. I think in the UK now they're suggesting that it might knock over all the hives in the UK which would be a uh, devastating situation. New Zealand, so far at least, has escaped that mass disappearance of honeybee populations, and it's still free of some of the pests and viruses that have been linked to colony collapses. But it does have varroa. The varroa destructor mite, first identified in this country nine years ago, is regarded by the industry here as the honeybee's worst enemy. Previously, the industry had only to deal with managing the long-established disease American fowl brood, which has been restricted to well under 1% of the country's beehives and one or two other controllable diseases such as chalk brood. And the National Beekeepers Association president, Franz Lars, shares a common view in the sector that New Zealand's long-running exotic bee disease surveillance program slipped up. It's quite clear that the surveillance systems did slip up, especially at the time, and, um, and Varroa was allowed to establish itself to the point where it was causing massive deaths before it was even discovered. So um, you know, it was clearly biosecurity hadn't done their job correctly at the time. But eradication now with knowing Varroa is probably one of the most evil parasites on the planet. Eradication was effectively futile. Paul Bolger, a senior policy analyst with MAFH Biosecurity, ran the Varroa response program after the government decided in 2000 that the pest couldn't be eradicated. He agrees that a better targeted surveillance program might have found the invader earlier, but he says that still may not have made any difference to the outcome. One of the problems is we still don't know how it got in. If it had come in as a large swarm of infested bees, it could have been there as little as a year or slightly over. If it came in as a smuggled queen with perhaps just one varroa, then it could have been there up to two or three years before it was found. One of the issues that came out during 2000 was the degree to which the industry itself was divided on what the appropriate response was. While there was an initial clamour for government to do everything possible to eradicate, a few cooler heads started to realise that the chance of success was relatively low and a failed eradication attempt would to a large extent depopulate the top of the North Island of its bees, and that would set the industry back a long way. So there was quite a bitter battle within the industry as to what course of action to recommend to the government. 
Having got here, Varroa wasted no time in becoming a permanent fixture. From its initial beachhead in the South Auckland area, within a year or two it had spread through most of the North Island. By 2006 it had crossed Cook Strait into the Nelson region and is now rapidly spreading through the rest of the South Island. It's forced big changes to the way beekeepers operate. For James Ward, who heads the Hawke's Bay-based company Kintail Honey, it's put a whole lot more pressure and cost on the business of supplying bees for pollination services, live bee exports and, of course, honey production. It's had a huge effect on our pocket. It's cost us another labour unit and cost us a lot of dollars in the treatments. There was two treatments that we're using. One is the, the Apilife, uh, the Armatreus strip. Um, that's a very expensive one. We use that in the spring and that's, that runs at about... $15 a hive I suppose and then at this time of the year we're using the, the Bayroll one which is the be- we find the better one of the two and that costs us about 10 bucks a hive. We're doing this over 10,000, just over 10,000 hives so what it's done is made us look for other things and what we've done is we've just gone out and we've increased our uh, kiwi fruit pollination. We brought a kiwi fruit pollination outfit in Tipuki and uh, we're just slowly expanding as we're learning. For Jane and Tony Lorimer, who operate their apiaries from their base outside Hamilton, it's meant a big shift in the culture of beekeeping. It's definitely meant that uh, it's changed from a lifestyle to really having to be a, a switched-on business. You've got to make sure that every colony now is actually a productive colony, whether it produces honey, pollination or whatever. You've got to make sure that every hive counts. And that's meant that we've ended up having to employ more people than what we would have done in the past and we also uh, reduced our hive numbers down from 1500 hives. The struggle and cost of containing then managing Varroa has taken a heavy toll on the bee industry in the North Island and a decline in the number of registered beekeepers reflects that. It's an experience that southern beekeepers are preparing for with some apprehension as the parasite spreads from its original South Island staging point in Nelson through Canterbury and down the west coast. John Hartnell, whose Federated Farmers Bee Group is mainly South Island-based, predicts the parasite will have reached most corners of the South Island in another year, and he says southern beekeepers will be at a disadvantage in dealing with it compared with their northern counterparts. Because they don't have the income streams that the North Island beekeepers have. The North Island beekeeper has this income stream from pollination, from honey production, and then from, in many instances, from the packaged bee exports. In the South Island we're really reliant on our honey production. There is pollination activities in the Nelson Mulberry area on kiwi fruit and in the mid Canterbury area on small seed. We do a lot of uh, carrot, onion, brassicas uh, pollination for seed export into the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and now with the oilseed rate coming on there's also opportunity for that as well. It's not shared by all beekeepers so there's going to be uh, perhaps 50% of our South Island beekeeping community having a, a double income stream, but we're still going to see a big slab that only have productivity through honey production. One of the biggest worries for New Zealand beekeepers is how long they've got before Varroa starts becoming resistant to the chemical treatments they're using. That's an issue already confronting beekeepers overseas who have had to resort to increasingly harsh miticides to kill the parasites. Those treatments are also failing now, and they're losing more hives to Varroa. Hawke's Bay beekeeper James Ward says they're trying to keep the chemical resistance issue at bay for as long as possible by alternating their use of the mite treatments. In our own business we are integrating uh, the two types of treatments so that 
But so far, touch wood, you know, we haven't had that problem. But uh, I dare say there are the cowboys out there that, uh, you know, they're only in the industry for a short period or they're retiring and they don't care and they're just going to keep on using the same old treatment uh, without alternating them, which is, uh, which is a worry. How long do you give New Zealand before we start really running into that sort of an issue? I would like to think we would get at least another, I would hope, another five, ten years. And what happens after that? Well, goodness knows. I guess... It's a sort of a bridge we're going to have to cross when we come to it. But there's an alternative non-chemical treatment on the way, a biological control that's been developed by the small team of bee scientists at the Plant and Food Research Institute at Ruakura in Hamilton, led by Dr Mark Goodwin. We've got a fungus, Metarizium. It's a fungus that attacks a whole lot of insects out the environment at any rate that actually kills Varroa, and fortunately the strains we've selected doesn't affect bees. That's showing a lot of promise, and in a year or so we hope to have that out there for beekeepers to use. Um, is it a silver bullet for Varroa? Probably not. We hope it's going to be a useful tool. Organic beekeepers in particular are hanging out for that. The non-chemical Varroa treatments tried so far haven't been effective. Although the latest trials are more promising, most organic honey producers in the North Island have had to forego their organic status and turn to chemicals to save their bees. Another tack that Mark Goodwin's team is taking is to breed strains of bees that are more resistant to Varroa. And we're trying to establish a self-sustaining population on Mercury Island. The scientist Michelle Taylor, who's, who's doing that, is hoping that by having it on Mercury Island, you won't have to continually do all the selection to keep it in the population, so that we'll just better take bees off that that have show, showed resistance to Varroa. It's not a solution, unfortunately. It's a tool, because once you bring them back to the mainland, although they may be resistant to Varroa, their offspring won't be. Franz Laus and Jane Lorimer are involved in another research group set up and funded by beekeepers which is taking the approach of using the good hygiene practices which are stronger in some honeybees than in others. Hygienic behaviours is basically the ability for bees to find and um, disease larvae or disease pupa and remove them very rapidly from the hive. And we know that hygienic bees have a, um, a better sense of uh, odour detection and are able to detect um, pupa which have a varroa in them and they remove them quite rapidly and uh, if the strength of the hygienic behaviour is sufficient they can actually maintain varroa mite uh, levels below the critical mass. They still do require some treatment but you don't have the critical problems where uh, you you get the hives collapsing very suddenly. But the attention of bee researchers these days is increasingly focused on the field of pollination and that's appropriate because when it comes to economic well-being and food supply it's not the honey on our toast that's important. Pollinating the plants that bees visit is the most significant role that they play. Gardeners have noticed the disappearance of honeybees, and Dr Linda Neustrom-Lloyd, a scientist with the Landcare Research Institute, says bee colony collapses and the spread of varroa and other pests and diseases are contributing to a developing global pollination crisis. She says the implications are as important as climate change. About one-third of the volume of our food comes from animal-pollinated plants. The rest of it? The crops that are wind-pollinated are things like the cereals and the grasses and the um, vegetatively propagated plants like potatoes and kumara. And if you take that third out, you're taking out 75% of the diversity of our food, all the fruits, nuts, vegetables like tomatoes and squash, 
And if you take that out of our diet, you're taking away the vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and the basis of the healthiness of our diet. And you'll end up with a very boring diet and an unhealthy diet. And Dr. Newstrom Lloyd says honeybees, and to a lesser extent bumblebees, are by far the most important pollinators of our fruit and veggie crops. For agriculture, you cannot replace the honeybee. It is the backbone of our agricultural system, and, and that's huge in the New Zealand economy. If you didn't have the honeybee and bumblebee in agriculture, then you would have to rely on probably our native bees. But they nest in the ground, and some of them nest in the wood, and they can carry a lot of pollen. And they're very important as alternative pollinators, but they haven't been domesticated. They can't be managed the same way that honeybees are, because honeybees live in colonies, and our native bees are are solitary. So the the role of the these social bees, or what I call large social bees, it's critical to our economy and critical to agriculture. Varroa has already wiped out most of the wild bee colonies in the North Island, and that's had a significant impact on pollination levels, not only for commercial fruit and veggie crops, but crops grown for seed and the nitrogen-fixing clover in pasture. Mark Goodwin says his team is putting an increasing amount of its effort into finding alternative ways of pollinating food and seed crops, not just here, but overseas, where colony collapse is having a profound effect. So for quite a large number of crops, we've been asked to look at trying to use bees more effectively, trying to get more value out of the bees that are there, so that if ever they become short numbers, they'll still be able to get their pollination done. But also more and more we're being asked to work on artificial pollination, This is picking flowers, extracting the pollen, and then putting it back onto flowers in some shape or form. It's something for the kefir industry we've been doing that's been done for quite a while now. We pick over 100 tonnes of kefir flowers every year. That's one flower at a time, as you can imagine, that's a big heap, to collect nearly a tonne of pollen. And a lot of that's sprayed back on. And what we've been asked to do by Zespri is to work out the most effective methods of doing that. But we've also been working on artificial pollination elsewhere, and half the team is in Italy at the moment. Because of the effect of rower and other things, they just can't get enough bees now to pollinate a lot of their kiwifruit crop. Mark Goodwin says, though, that artificial pollination would only work for a few crops, so it's not a silver bullet solution for the loss of bees. While the main preoccupation has been with Varroa, because it's already here, it's not the only biosecurity threat to New Zealand's bee industry. Russell Berry is proprietor of the Rotorua division of Arataki Honey, one of the largest honey, pollination and live bee export operators. The biggest threat is biosecurity in New Zealand, allowing in pests and diseases of beehives. If we allow in honey from overseas or any bee products or live bees, we are putting New Zealand beekeeping at great risk. And we have spent a lot of time on trying to reduce these biosecurity risks. Free trade's a wonderful thing, but you can't have free trade when you compromise biosecurity. And unfortunately, with our government of New Zealand, both uh, in the past government of Labour and National, free trade is far more important than biosecurity. The concern has always been that New Zealand could end up with European foul brood. It's regarded as the foot-and-mouth disease of the bee world because it spreads so easily, and beekeepers have to resort to antibiotics to control it. But European foul brood is just one of a swarm of pests and diseases that now exist in Australia, and which New Zealand beekeepers fear could end up here through imported honey and bee products. 
Jim Edwards of the National Beekeepers Association. Australia has been unfortunate to have now got a European fowl brood in Nozema and a small hive beetle, and they are under increasing or continual threat across their northern border because the, the Northern Territory is very close, in fact, to the Southeast Asian island nations. Very short distance for migration of bees or for product to be carried across. Beekeepers marched on Parliament in 2006 and successfully waged a legal campaign through the High Court and then the Court of Appeal, blocking MAF Biosecurity's decision to allow treated honey to be imported from Australia. In terms of international trade, you are entitled to protect yourself against the importation of disease risks. And that's the bottom line in terms of the SPS agreement. So the industry certainly believes that it's got a very favourable health status which needs protecting, and the economics of the industry and the reliance of pollination on a successful industry are dependent on maintaining that health status and not putting it at any risk. The legal case forced the previous government to amend legislation covering import health standards and introduce a new provision to allow disputes to go to independent review. And a review panel is now assessing the conflicting scientific arguments on the risk of allowing those Australian imports. The Biosecurity and Agriculture Minister David Carter says New Zealand has to treat its trading partners as it wants to be treated. In arguing for New Zealand product to go into any other country in the world, we want those arguments and the biosecurity requirements to be determined based on science and not emotion. So if a country like Australia can argue that there is no biosecurity risk from honey coming into New Zealand and the science has ultimately proved to support the argument being advanced by the Australian authorities, then on that basis we should be prepared to accept that product into New Zealand. David Carter says the independent review panel was set up in response to the industry view that MAF became both the judge and jury in developing import health standards. He says the panel will be the final arbiter in the honey import dispute. Once the independent science review panel makes a determination, that will decide the import health standard from a MAF point of view. So if the science panel is to rule in favour of MAF's previous scientific conclusions, then the import of honey will occur from Australia. If the independent panel was to actually dispute MAF's original findings, then I think the whole process probably has to start again. While the aim is to stop any more invaders from entering the country, there's an ongoing honeybee exotic disease and pest surveillance program designed to pick up anything that does slip through. The program, managed by the Assure Quality Agency, requires inspecting hives and samples from hundreds of apiaries for nine exotic pests and diseases. They include two species of African bee regarded as predators of the honeybee. Murray Reid, an apicultural officer with Assure Quality, says the testing program has been expanded and intensified since Varroa's arrival. The tests we do now test the whole hive, so it is quite sensitive, but it means two visits to the apiary, which is expensive, and the, the sticky boards themselves are expensive, as are the miticide strips. Currently, we're looking at uh, 350 apiaries, and on an average, uh, there'll be less than 10 hives in each apiary. But we, we pick high-risk locations, and most of those are around centres of population, where the travelling public and uh, quarantine risks are high. It's around airports, seaports, garbage dumps, um, perhaps suburbs where there's travelling public. 
But even with these precautions, there's no guarantee that New Zealand, in the end, will escape the mass destruction of bees that's occurred overseas. And on top of that, there's another threat to honeybee survival here that stems from farming and horticultural practices. Every year, bees are killed by insecticide sprays or drowned by irrigators on farms and orchards. The losses aren't on the massive scale reported in Europe from agrochemical use, but they're significant enough to have led to the creation of the Bee Safe Group, which works to raise awareness of the chemical threat to bees, as well as investigating cases of bee poisoning. Neil McMillan, president of the Bay of Plenty Base Group, says most bee poisoning episodes stem from contractors spraying in the wrong conditions or getting chemicals mixed up. If you look at last year, for instance, we looked at probably around about the 300 hives that were seriously affected in the Bay of Plenty area. When you see beehives totally uh, decimated, that's the worst case scenario. What can also happen is that uh, infected pollen can be stored and actually brought out in a later date in the food supply and uh, there's a concern that this toxin may actually enter the honey which uh, could have major effects in the export honey business as well. So um, it's it's a huge issue and we have poisonings every year. Farming practices overseas have also been linked to another threat to honeybee survival, and that's malnutrition, from bees not getting a balanced pollen diet. That's largely due to the intensification of agriculture and farming of single crops on a giant scale. Linda Newstrom-Lloyd from Landcare Research explains. Single crops, monocultures, are part of the problem, and they are listed as one of the factors in colony collapse disorder, that the bigger you get and the more you force bees onto a single diet a single flower, the more susceptible they are. One person who was writing about colony collapse disorder said, imagine if you were forced onto a single diet of gruel, you were transported around the country hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, like days of traveling, and then someone sprayed raid in your face. Would you not also be unhealthy? And are we surprised that we have colony collapse disorder? So, faced with all of these challenges, can the honeybee survive? The consensus is, yes, it probably can, but only with human help and management. And Mark Goodwin says that's a quandary because as well as being bees' best friend, people have also been their worst enemy. Honeybees need human beings to survive now more than ever. Unfortunately, the reason they need human beings is because we shifted them around the world and made sure that they were exposed to every pathogen that they could ever ever come across. So we've made life really, really hard for them as well. And through our management and the sorts of things we do to them, we make it much harder to live as well. Problem with that, of course, is not only have we made it hard for the bees, we absolutely desperately need them. We, for most of our agricultural endeavours, rely on honeybees in some shape or form, and we have to be ensured that they will survive. And because of that, I'm confident that they will, but I just know that it's going to get increasingly difficult all the time to make sure that they're there in sufficient numbers to do what we want to do. Beekeepers regard themselves as an optimistic breed. They reckon they have to be to keep going in the face of the challenges stacked up against them and their colonies. And they have faith that with their expertise and the help of science, the honeybee will survive, at least in this country. We always tend to be pretty innovative sorts. And, you know, our researchers have come up with this fungus that has potential in that for keeping varroa under control. Certainly New Zealand and that can make some gains with regards to other countries at the moment suffering this colony collapse disorder. The world is not falling apart for us at least in New Zealand and I think most beekeepers in New Zealand are in a positive mood although we're doing things we don't like to do but I think we're in a good position because our marketing, our our systems for honey production are quite tightly controlled and now we've got a good reputation overseas for our product. New Zealand beekeepers are, are really really 
top flight beekeepers from what I've seen around the world. New Zealand beekeepers just seem to be that step above other beekeepers because we have to. That programme was written and presented by Kevin Eichen. Technical production was by Chris Adams and the producer was Sue Ingram.